You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. In this, in this, in this uh, series that we've been looking at, if you want to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, um, this is a segment within the book of Genesis about Abraham's life. And, and what we're seeing about Abraham is Abraham's learning not just to be a servant or to be served by God, to be a friend of God which means Abraham is learning to share God's heart. There's a difference between somebody serving somebody's will, uh, doing what somebody wants, and sharing somebody's heart, wanting what somebody wants. Those are two separate things. And and we're learning that as time is going on, that that God is blessing his broken world, not just around Abraham, but, but through Abraham. He is blessing and changing the world that is around Abraham by changing Abraham, by matching his heartbeat with his. And so um, we're actually going um, to pick up in, in Genesis 18 uh, with a heavy story for the next couple of days. Uh, I guess uh, the Lord kind of wants us to walk through this. By the way, if you're new here, we just walk through books of the Bible. For the most part, we started in Genesis before uh, the summer, then COVID hit. Then over the summer, we looked at Psalms as well as a, a topical series. But we're getting back into this series of Genesis. And, uh, and this is the topic of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so um, what we see here is that through this process of chapters uh, 18 through uh, basically through 20, where Abraham is, is interceding and praying uh, for this city, is that Abraham's not only learning uh, to pray um, and to serve God in that way, but he's learning to priest, to be like God. There's a difference between learning how to pray and how to be a priest. Friendship doesn't just mean serving, it means sharing, and Abraham is learning how to be a friend of God. So this is where we pick up in verse 16. It says this. It says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Verse 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is, what is just so the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. God is, 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 is beginning this passage of scripture as he's about to talk to Abraham, remembering who Abraham is and who Abraham is called to be. Abraham is called to be a friend of God. But to be a friend of God is not just to be friends, but to become a priest, to become a representative. A priest is somebody that basically, I know we think of priests, right? We think of somebody that has a collar and, you know, is ecumenical or whatever and, you know, maybe uh, has a black robe. But, but a priest, the Bible says, everyone that is in Jesus is a priest, a holy priesthood, First Peter would call us. And what a priest does is the priest goes before God um, to talk about man, to, to bring the needs and wants and concerns of man before God. But he also does the opposite, or her or she does the opposite, which is to bring the, the will and the desire of God before man. And this is what a priest is. A priest is this bridge that is equally rooted in heaven and equally rooted on earth. I don't know if you've ever met somebody or, or heard of the phrase before, somebody is too heavenly good uh, to be, or too heavenly minded to be earthly good. Have you ever heard of this phrase? And I think we've all experienced this before. As a matter of fact, I'm sure during different times of faith, um, that, you know, our thoughts and our theology may have led us to places like this where faith becomes more of an escape than it becomes um, an activation, a transformational agent. Uh, faith becomes something that I escape my world with, that I can kind of uh, transcend problems with or, or uh, pretend like I, I'm not kind of in the middle uh, of solidarity of problems here on this earth. 
And so there is a way to be too heavenly minded without being any earthly good, but there's also, right, a way to be too earthly minded, minded without being any heavenly good. And, and instead of transcending problems, it just means that we sort of get conquered by the problems. It means that we sort of get um, enchained by the problems. But this, this, this is what, um, what Abraham is being made to be. Every friend of God is simultaneously being made a priest for God, somebody that goes before God on behalf of man and goes before man on behalf of God. And so the priest, the priest is becoming this bold and broken person. The priest is becoming a bold and broken person, a person that is rooted in the heavenly things, but then at the same time rooted in earthly things. They are a bridge of authority and empathy. And this is what the friends of God are being made to be. And Abraham is being made no less than this. I got Timothy's iPad up here. He is a popular dude. Uh, moving on. Um, so it says... Uh, It says this in verse 20, it says, The Lord said that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, um, I will know. Uh, So my mother-in-law, Colleen, um, I don't know if you have somebody like this that just is just so sweet and so dear and and just loves kids, okay? And so the thing about uh, Colleen is that Colleen has, has really significant core values in her heart uh, for kids, and that is safety and the cleanliness. If there's anything that she wants for kids, is that, are the kids, are they safe? Are, are, are they clean? Is, are, did they make sure that they have their, you know, the, their deodorant on? Are they clean? Do they have clean underwear? Like, this is a big deal. And so we have this sink in our house, and one of the things about the sink in our house is that we actually turn the temperature down because we didn't want uh, anybody to get burned. And so this one time she came over and she almost had like a, a, a mental crisis when the sink came on because the water wasn't hot enough. And she was like, now, Oliver, she was like, the problem is if the sink's not hot enough, it's not gonna be able to wash the dishes. And I was like, but, I was like, Colleen, if the sink's too hot, that'll burn the kid in the bath. And her brain was just like ready to explode because it was like too, it was like a, hard, a rock and hard blade. It was like she couldn't decide like cleanliness, but she would lose the safety, right? But then the safety would like lose the cleanliness. So Abraham is called to be a priest, to represent man before God and represent God before man. And he's not just called to rely on the hand of the Lord, but he's called to discuss and, and to, to, to navigate the heart of the Lord, to know the heart of the Lord. And what he's starting to realize about the Lord is that inside the heart of the Lord, there's these two complementary, they're not competing, but two value sets within the Lord's heart that are held in tension at, at all times. And that is that the Lord is perfect in his justice and perfect in his mercy. Okay? So this is the thing is that, that the Lord is perfect in his justice. This is what it says in verse, uh, uh, where are we at? Verse 20, right? That the Lord hears the outcry of every poor person that ever cries up against uh, an oppressive uh, empire, right? So every prayer that's ever prayed by a weak or victim or voiceless person is heard by the Lord and not forgotten. And we talked about this in a, in a prior series, but it's probably socially relevant to talk about it now, like, right? So the current events withstanding, right? Like, like we talked about this, like if George Floyd's death is to get justice, that justice is necessarily attached to judgment. There's no such thing as justice that doesn't come with judgment. If the police officer is going to get what he deserves, he will get judgment, and God is either not going to answer George Floyd in his family's prayer, or he's not going to be, uh, or he's, he, he's, he's, not ju- he's not just, right? So this is the, uh, this is the tension that we live in, and and so what you see is that God cannot be just unless he offers judgment. We, we see God as this kind of angry, vindictive tax 
you know, agent that's always, you know, micromanaging us and looking for every little thing that we got wrong. But we, we fail to recognize, right? Like, when we watch Schindler's List, we always think we're Schindler. We never think we're Hitler. We always think we're the victim of sin and never the villain. But the reality is that all of the things that we do that fall short of God's glory have ripple effects into the atmosphere. And all of this compounds to be outcries up to God. And here's the deal. It is both individual and corporate. So look at, look at this uh, Exodus 34 uh, uh, no, excuse me, we're down here in, uh, in Ezekiel, I think it's uh, up on the screen, I can't remember which chapter it is, I think it's chapter 6, referring back to Sodom, the prophet Ezekiel speaks about the reason for Sodom's judgment. It says this in verse 49, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and underconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy, they were haughty and detestable before me. Did you catch that? So the sin of Sodom, which we're going to find out in later chapters, is uh, wild and grotesque, lawless sexual uh, abuse. Okay, and we're going to talk about that, and that's going to be rated pretty much R when I read it out of the Scripture. So if you have younger kids, maybe uh, give them some coloring books that, that morning, next morning. But, but it has to do, the, the sin of Sodom has to do with individual sin. It has to do with one person sinning against another, but it also has to do with systemic sin. It has to do with the fact that the system of Sodom was that the poor and the needy and the oppressed were not helped and didn't have, did not see charity and were not served, and therefore that caused a, a judgment that was just. Okay, that's ultimately the sin of Sodom. And so that's it, right? So the lady that's walking down the street that's in a bad side of town that gets robbed was sinned against individually. But if that lady had given none of her money to the poor, right? If she had no mercy, no compassion, and did not follow God's rule in that way, then although she didn't sin against the other guy individually, she sinned against the guy systemically. So it's both. This is what God's trying to say. Cain killed his brother and then built a city. That sin is individual and it's prolific and it's systemic. And so this is what you know, right? Ezekiel and Sodom is trying to tell us, that the outcry of, of the oppressed, the abused, the hurt, rises up to heaven and causes judgment to fall down. This is the, this is the, we have to reckon with this reality. This is what a good God must be if he is just and he has judged, and he, and he judges well, okay? And here's the sober truth, right? Because we are increasingly moving to a point of time when, um, when it would seem as though, if you think about this, that the people that are making the outcry are the innocent ones, where the people that are oppressing the people underneath them, causing them to outcry, are the, are the, vic, are the villains of the whole thing. But if you look at the, the collateral analysis of Sodom and Gomorrah, nobody survives. So we're in a situation where we... we we make protagonists of victims. Like, if it, to the degree that you're hurt is the degree that you're innocent. But that's not true. Even the people that are outcrying are not innocent. No one is innocent before God, right? This is the thing. And so, and so over time, the scales of justice continue to rise up, and God must be just or he is not good. This is what Exodus says. It's the most quoted passage in all of Old Testament scripture, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This is the character of God. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, is compassionate and gracious, He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children's children for the sins of their parents, the third and the fourth generation. So Colleen can't decide which one she cares about more. Does she care about cleanliness or does she care about safety? And so it is with Yahweh, this tension of how can I see, how can I be just, how can I judge, how can, how can I be just, but how can I see mercy triumph over that judgment? The heart of the Lord in Peter says that he desires that no man would perish. 
It is not his desire that anyone would fall under judgment. It is not his desire that the scales of heaven would be, would be cast down in judgment um, divinely on any, any human being. But he has, to be, he has to judge if he's just. And so this is where the Lord's heart is. It's this desire uh, to be just, this need to be just and to judge, but this desire for mercy to somehow triumph over judgment. How can God execute his justice but yet triumph in his mercy? How will this happen? This is how he does it. He calls before him a priest. And this is where Abraham comes in. Verse 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Okay? Then it says, verse 23, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So that word approach, so he's already standing, but then the, the, the author adds an extra step of Abraham stands and then he approaches God. That word approach is a legal term. It's like if a, if a lawyer were to approach the bench. So the lawyer, in this case Abraham, is becoming the intercessor. He's the bridge. He's the priest between God and man, representing God to man and, God, and man to God. And he's going for God to sort of make this case. This is what Abraham says to God. He says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there were 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? So what the lawyer doesn't do in a case is say, yeah, I know that my client was uh, speeding, uh, but that law is stupid, so you should just like throw it out anyways, right? right? So the, law, the lawyer is not appealing you know, to, um, to try and change the law. The lawyer appeals to the law to execute the law in the favor of the client. He's the advocate, right? So this is what he's saying. He's not saying you're wrong for judging the world. He's saying you're, you're right for judging the world, but I sense in the way that you covered Adam, in the way that you put a mark on Cain, in the way that you provided a salvific way out with Noah's Ark, I sense that though you are just and judgmental, that you will ultimately want to bend the narrative towards mercy. I sense this in you. And so I'm going to approach the bench, and I'm going to appeal to you. And this is what, what God's doing, right? Like, like, if you were to try and sell Girl Scout cookies, what you really need to do is make sure that Kyra's with me because I won't buy the Girl Scout cookies, but Kyra will make me buy the Girl Scout cookies, right? So this is what God is doing. This is, how much, this, is a, this is a little subtext, but this is how much prayer matters to God. There are occasions within the Old Testament in Jeremiah and other places where he literally tells the prophet not to pray for the people that are about to receive judgment because he knows that the prayers of the righteous availeth much. So how does he contend his, his justice Right, and then see it triumph by mercy is he puts an advocate, a priest before him to appeal to him, to appeal to his compassionate nature, to appeal to uh, his character, to, to, to speak, again, not to say that, that the law is wrong, but to, to speak to the character of God to remind him of his compassion uh, for his people. Okay, So he makes this bold move. He says to, he says to God, far be it from you, from you, will you not judge the earth and do right? Okay, so there's three layers to the argument of what he's trying to say. Now, the first layer is, is very common, whether it's Moses or Jeremiah or Amos or Micah. Um, it, is, it is common that the prophet of God will stand before God and plead for the mercy on the Israelite family camp. He's, they'll, they'll, they'll plead on behalf of the covenant of God. They'll say, you know, you have promised our fathers to be gracious and compassionate, and, and so I'm going to appeal to your character and to your promise and say, save your people um, from, from themselves and save your people from their enemies. But that's not what Abraham is doing. 
That's not what Abraham's doing. He's not just saying to save his people. He's saying to spare his enemies. Did you catch that? So it's not just saving the Israelites. It's saving the Canaanites. And so he is pleading not just for his people, but for the people around them. I I used to be a teacher, and I'll tell you, if you're a teacher, let me just give you, don't go to education school, just get your certificate, and this is all that you need to know. The most, the biggest problem you're ever going to have with teaching is talking. The kids in there, I don't care what school, they're not bad, they're not going to slash your tires, they're not going to like intimidate you. They're just going to talk incessantly, and they won't ever stop talking. That's just how it goes, right, Caroline? I mean, this is the number one thing. I don't need a PhD, I just need to get the kids to stop doing the jibber-jabbering, Okay. I found out like year three, that's just a trade secret, I'll just give this one to you for free. What you do when you start, when they start talking is you start counting. Oh my gosh, like, and even like normal, like your kids will like freak out when you start counting. Something about the human brain or something doesn't like to see elevation, it feels like there's tension in the room. So 10, 11, right, 12. And then, once you get to the end of the class, for every second that they, they, they took from you, you take it back from them at the door. So I stood at the door, and one time I counted to 120 seconds, and it's as though I was suffocating them. It was like David Blaine was in an eight-minute water tank, and they needed to get out of that place. Because they watch TV, and although they're in the hallway for five minutes at a time times seven minutes a day is 35 minutes a time, say by the bell tells them that's the entire reason why they're at school, so they can be in the locker room, right? Like that's the reason why they want to post up and check out girls or whatever. So I'm at the door, and I count 120 seconds, and it's though I am like taking their life's inheritance. They're like, how dare you, Mr. Wong, you cruel person. They're so angry. And then the seconds go down, and it's just absolutely awesome, right? And so after a while, you know, like at least, at least it was decent in me that I would pick, you know, uh, you know I would pick Cameron because I know he'd be a good student. I would tell Cameron because he wasn't talking the whole time, this would drive him nuts, Cameron. I would open the door, and I'd be like, you, you can come out. And Cameron would get up and be like, see you later. See y'all later, deuces. Because Cameron's so quiet, and he's just frustrated at the whole system anyways because, you know, kids are constantly talking. They're not getting their penalties, right? So just a normal, like, just, just in terms of just justice, right? Surely he's saying, I'm going to appeal to this nature of just ethics. Like, you don't treat a righteous person like they're guilty. And you don't treat a guilty person like they're righteous. Like, that's the bare minimum. But beyond that, he's not only saying that, that he should save his people, he's saying he should spare the unrighteous. And spare in this word means forgive. So under that is a bold question. What he's asking the Lord is, and he's going to kind of count. Now, have you read this story before? It goes from 50 to 45 to 30 and all that kind of thing. He's, he's, he's going deeper into the heart of the Lord, and he's like lessening and lessening the number of the quotas of righteousness. By the way, Sodom probably has maybe forty-five to 60,000 people in this town, and he's talking about on the behalf of 50 people, would you spare the other, whatever, 35,000 people, right? And he's saying, now I know that, that the sins of the wicked can impart and influence the good apples in the town. We know that that can happen. And in the larger scope of things, you may be right because you may visit the sins of the father on the children and so forth. You may be right to execute judgment on, on all of us because in a way, either by way of influence or impartation, like because this wickedness is going on next to me and because I'm not doing anything about it and because we're not just individually sinning against each other, but corporately I don't do anything about it and my complicitness and silence causes my wickedness, at least I, we could all see how the wickedness can kind of move into the righteousness, right? But here's the question that I think he's asking. We're assuming that the wickedness could impart and invade into the righteous camp. But now he's sort of asking, not just would, would the wickedness fall on the credit of, of, of the undeserving righteous, but he's asking, what if the, the, the righteousness um, that was due to a person or to a group, what if the righteousness could overcome and impart and 
come to the group of the wicked. Not only could, what, like, like, we all understand how wickedness could rub off on the righteous, but what if somehow the righteousness of someone or a group of people could rub off on the wickedness of others? What if righteousness could move its way into um, and cover for the wicked just by way of solidarity? So verse 26, he goes through this whole pattern. He says, the Lord says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. But then the Lord goes, or then Abraham goes on, verse 27. Then Abraham spoke up again. He says, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Would you destroy the city for five less people? If I find 45 people there, he says, I will not destroy it. Verse 29, once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He says, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he says, um, uh, may the Lord not be angry with me, but let me speak. What if 30 can be found there? He says, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham says, now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord and What if only 20 can be found there? And he says, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. So the Lord is fashioning Abraham. He has not forgotten about his world. It's a good world that's been broken and made bad. And he's not changing it. He's not blessing it by osmosis, but through friendship. He's not just changing the world, he's changing Abraham to be a blessing to the world. And part of his identity means that he's not just becoming a friend of God, but he's becoming a priest before God. This is the longest prayer that we've seen in this Bible up to this point. And this is the content. This, is, this should catch our attention, like what is on God's heart that Abraham is learning to discuss. And that is that God must be just, and God must bring judgment But the heart of God desires and looks for a way. How could there be a way that mercy would be able to triumph over that judgment? That no man would perish. That people would repent and to turn and to humble themselves and to somehow be accredited righteousness by faith. Abraham is saying as a priest, essentially, if you've done it in me, you can do it for others. If you can do it in 10, you could do it in 50. And if you could do it in 50, you could do it in thousands. So do in me what you've done, and others don't stop with me, but continue to not just bless me, but make me a blessing for the nations. But the math leaves us short, right? Some of you guys don't want to hear me talk about Hamilton because I talk about it all the time. But there's this song in Hamilton called The Ten Dual Commandments, and the the song goes like this. It counts up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and it doesn't hit the ten. You guys know? It goes one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine, and your little heart is like, what about the ten? You can't just finish at nine. There's like so much tension and they want it there because someone's going to get shocked. And you're like, where's the 10? That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to read this and be like, what about the one? What about one? What if there was one righteous person that could priest in the area, right? If there was one righteous person that could go before God on behalf of man and go before man on behalf of God, what what would be the influence of that? So we read the chapter. And we learn a couple things. We learn some bad news, and then we think about some good news, right? What's the bad news? Well, it turns out there's not ten righteous people in Sodom. There's like four iffies, right? <laughs> one of them turns around for some salt, or one of them turns around turns into salt, and then there's Lot, and he's not great, right? But he makes it by a thread, okay? So a little preview of what happens next. 
So Abraham isn't the priest that can intercede for Sodom completely. And Lot's not righteous at the center of the city in order to be the righteous one. But God is saying, if the person was righteous enough, if the person was righteous enough for one, for one, for his sake, I would spare the city. But it has to be the right one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Jesus, right? If there's one, if there's one, if he's righteous enough, if he's my son, I could spare the city for his sake if he asked me to. So, this is what Abraham's prayer reveals to us. Abraham's being made a priest, but Abraham's prayer reveals that he can't be our priest. He can only point to the one who can be our priest. He is, he, is, he is showing his incapacity. He's showing the heart. He's showing he, he knows God better than any man that's walked the earth. He is a friend of God. He knows God's business. He not only knows God's plans, he knows God's business, and he not only does what God says, but he wants what God wants. He comes to the end of the conversation, and there's a minor note, and it's, and it's demanding for something more than Abraham. It's demanding for a great high priest. This is what Hebrews would tell us. Now, he says in Hebrews, this is a new writer, New Testament, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus is the great high priest that lives forever. He is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Did you hear that? Jesus is not like Abraham because he is perfect, and he's eternal. All the other priests, all the other ones that wanted to have compassion and stand in the gap and pray and plead and cry out, they all touched God's heart, but only one was effective. It was Jesus. So Jesus has his longest prayer, I think it's his longest prayer, recorded in the Bible in John 17, called the High Priestly Prayer. And his prayer looks a lot like the same, um, the, the same motive as, as Abraham's. He's praying on behalf of others that can't pray for themselves. But he prays these prayers, which are up here in John 17, the high priestly prayer. He prays that his disciples will be protected. He prays that you and I will be made one with his church. He prays for unity within the church. This is, he knows what, what to do. He knows how to do it. His prayers, his prayers are right, and they work. He is a great high priest, and the Father always answers the prayers of Jesus. And he says he lives. He's an eternal priest who goes before the Father. He's the priest that Abraham couldn't be. And he continues to intercede on the behalf of his church. This is what he prays for you. This is what he prays for me. And all of these prayers are answered in Jesus' name. What it means is when he ascends on the right hand of the Father, he sits next to the, to, to, on the right hand of the Father on the throne. It's a picture of Sabbath when, when, when God got done with his work and he rested. And it's a communication to all of eternity and all of creation that his work is done. There is no more work to be done. He has completed it and he has established it by the authority of his Father in heaven. He is a lawyer that's never lost a case. And he continually prays for us for our best benefit. He prays for us for things that we don't even know we need to pray for. We pray for things like, I hope my car doesn't break down. This is what he's praying for us. These are not only the right prayers, these are the prayers that work. And this is the high priest that prays before you and me, day and night. He lives to intercede for you, that you would be protected, that you would be made one with his church. This is what he's praying right now, and his prayer is working. 
Let them not get so arrogant and boastful and prideful that they run away from community thinking they don't need it or that everybody else is wrong, right? This is what he's praying, and it's working. I know you think it hurts. I know you think you're annoyed at, you know, your family and your friends and all this stuff. I know you think that it seems like a detour. It's not. It's an answer to his prayer because you're being made one. This is the high priestly prayer. He's praying that you're saved, right? And not just at the middle school camp where you came and cried, like saved, like worked out your salvation with fear and trembling, that you are becoming the kind of human that he has died for you to become. He will be effective in that. To the degree that he is seated at the right, seated at the right hand of the Father, he's executing that on your behalf. That lawyer has never lost a case, and that prayer has never gone unanswered. He is praying for your salvation day and night. Do you know that? You have a high priest that is praying for you. You can't go before God and ask him not to bring judgment on you. You appeal to the lawyer. You appeal to the priest. He is your intercessor, and he is praying for you day and night. It's what he lives to do. He prays that you're sanctified. He prays that you're the kind of husband that you're supposed to be, the kind of wife you're supposed to be, the kind of parent you're supposed to be, the kind of neighbor you're supposed to be, not to settle for some sort of a broken, you know, uh, crippled rendition of, of, of what your potential is. But no, he put your, his Holy Spirit in you to make you like him. Oh, and that you would know him that you would not just do what he says, but you would know him in an intimate place the way that Abraham knew him. That's the era we go to Abraham. Oh, he's, he prayed for 15 minutes. He has 14 stanzas. Maybe I should pray for 14. Like we always just want to follow the method. And, and what this thing is saying, don't follow Abraham's prayer. Pray to the one he points. Pray to the one he points and know him. Like know what his heart is like, his heart for the nations. Let the things that break his heart break yours. What does it mean to become a priest? To be bold and to be broken at the same time. It means that you're at the feet of Jesus and you are, you're at the feet of the high priest. And that we would go into the world and not stay huddled in some holy cluster, you know? But to go out and to see that he is victorious. That we are not just substituted for, that we are made more than conquerors and that we are to represent him as priests into the neighborhoods, into the nations. This is what he's praying for. This is what is going to happen. This is what is established by him being seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our great high priest. He is eternal and perfect. So, of course, the second application is that if he's our high priest, then we are being made, just as Second Peter says, to be a holy priesthood. Excuse me, First Peter. To be made a holy priesthood. Verse 14 of, uh, this one is Hebrews 4, I think it is. Yeah, 4. Thank you, Matt. 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's the deal. If Jesus is our high priest, then we are continually moved from outcry to intercession. Outcry does not, is not the thing that, that makes us righteous, right? Outcry is in our, political, in our political season, in our political cycle, is complaining about people rather than praying for them. Outcry is blaming other people and being upset about the way things are rather than trusting the high priest that can fix it. So this is necessarily what happens. If we have a high priest, we don't go to God complaining. We go to God praying. We don't go to the world. If we're a priest, we don't represent God by complaining to other people about why that political party or that plan or that attitude or that Facebook post is the problem. No, we don't complain. We don't cry out anymore. We, we intercede because we know that our prayers are effective. And if Jesus' prayers are answered, then every prayer that we pray in Jesus' name is answered. So we are being made bold and broken at the same time. Here's the thing. 
Without Jesus, you can be bold without broken. And without Jesus, you can be broken without bold. But the gospel is the only thing that can make us both bold and broken at the same time. This is the way that that Abraham approaches the bench. This is the way that he approaches the father in prayer. He says, oh Lord, would I be so bold a man that is made of dust? What is that? When a priest knows that they are bold, they can go before God with confidence. But at the same time, this, this, this tension, a paradox of being broken at the same time, you can be bold without being broken without the gospel. That just looks like looking down on people. There's a spiritual elitism that says, because you're here in this seat, that sinks into our head and heart, that thinks we're better than everybody else, right? We'd have to wake up trying not to do that. Because there's an escapism within church that just says, because I pray, because I sing for longer than you, or I have my hands up or whatever, I know God better than you. No. The only, one, the only way that we know God is through Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ didn't count himself equating with God something to be grasped, but he lowered himself as a servant, so then we don't know God. Right? So that's, that's what happens to us, and it, and it cuts the legs out from under us as a priesthood is because we're, we're rooted in heaven, but we're not rooted on earth, and we've forgotten where we come from. The truth is, is that when we come to Jesus, our sins are forgiven, right? And they are forgotten in a certain way, but they're not just forgotten, they're redefined. They're made into a trophy of grace. If Jesus didn't want to like use our story of brokenness or remind us of our brokenness every now and again, then why would Paul continue to talk about his murdering? Why would he continue to bring up Peter's betrayal? Why would he continue to bring up all of these things that come in the past? Because our past isn't like forgotten in the sense of just, it, it's not there. It's, it's redefined in light of his grace. And it reminds us, that's why Ephesians continually says, that's why they continue to talk about sin to people that don't have sin, is to remember where you came from. Don't forget that it's by the kindness of the Lord that you repented. Don't forget that you were once dead in your trespasses. Why is he so uh, eager to bring this stuff up, the Holy Spirit, is because he wants us to remember that we are broken people, because it makes us good priests. A lot of times we want to minister in our strengths, we want to go to places because we're good at writing or speaking, or we're good at, you know, working whatever it is that we work and we want to minister where we're strong but I wonder if as a priestly person like in many ways the answer to where are we supposed to be priesting is like where was I before I met Jesus let me go there because that's where I was weak that's where he found me I wonder if you even paused to ask the question or thought about your story of brokenness like where where would God lead you back to the place where you were found if it was in youth group or in elementary school or in family or wherever else it would be to boast and minister and priest in your weakness rather than your strengths. But there's another kind of, of, of priesting that doesn't involve the high priest, and that is to be broken without being bold. It is, it is to be, you know, powerless. It is, it is to outcry about, you know, somebody else that did something to me or this group or this political thing, and it doesn't hold within it the power and the overcoming victorious nature of God. And this is what the scripture is telling us to come before him broken, but bold to, to, to know that he empathizes with all of our weakness, but he doesn't leave us there. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our hour of need. Um, let me, uh, I'll call Timothy up. And uh, we've been doing these, these ministry times to, to pray in our seat. Um, but what I want to do, um, I believe this is, if you haven't caught the point, the point is, is that... Um, that if you and I have, 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 have begun in any way, shape, or form to follow uh, Jesus as the high priest, then he's not only making us a friend, he's making us a priest. And a priest is somebody who continually goes before God with brokenness and boldness to pray for people who can. This is why 
the world is the way that it is. This is why he's bringing us broken people. This is why he's bringing us brokenness and problems is not to complain about them or outcry about them, but to pray for them, okay? And so here's what I want to do. I want you to think of, of, of one of two different people or maybe both people, and I want you to pray for them. Here's where we, here's where we cannot priest. We can't priest for anybody that we're looking down on. If you think you're better than somebody, you can't pray for them. Not the way Jesus wants you to pray for them, right? So we come to the, first thing is we don't come to ourselves as though we're, the, you know, the, the land that was slain. We go to him and we say to him, show me the me in that person. Most of the time, the most difficult people in your life, God is trying to show you, they sin differently than you maybe, but he's trying to show you what you look like before you met him. And you can't pray for anybody that you're better than. So we're going to pray, and we have these kind of priestly prayers for people up here. But I want you to think of somebody, because they don't dress like you or look like you or whatever, and you're just upset at them, and you're frustrated, and you don't understand why they continue to make the same stupid choices that you continue to make at one point in your life, or continue to make, maybe now, if you ask your spouse. And you say, Lord, break me. I'm not broken yet to be a priest for you. Okay, so that's the first person. But the second person is the person that you're scared of. You can't priest for anybody that you're scared of. You can't priest for anybody you're impressed of, and you can't priest for anybody that you're um, intimidated by. Who is somebody that you think that because, because they're right or because they're so awesome or because they're better than you or because they have the idol that you wish that you had that has un- unemployed you from being a priest? These are the two categories of people I think that we oftentimes fail to priest for. But ultimately, it's very simple. We go before God and we bring man before God and bring God before man. And that's what an image bearer is. This is the royal priesthood that he has made us establish from the very beginning. Adam was called to work and to keep the land, to rule over it. And we are here to be priests. We will never be satisfied until we fill this role. As long as we think that we're here to be politicians or here to be spokespersons or personalities or Instagram influencers, we will miss our calling. You are not called to be an Instagram influencer. You are called to be a priest. And being a priest means you are daily being made broken, beautiful, and bold before him. And so if discipleship is why we're here, then I'll quote Stuart Stuart Fuller from Radius Church. The best thing you do to be a disciple is to just pray and fast for somebody for a really long time. To be broken and bold for them. Whoever it is in your mind, if you're afraid of them, if you look down on them, whoever it is, I just invite you to pray. So let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll close in worship. But let's just pray through this list. And I want you to think of this person. Well, Father, we just pray right now for the protection of our city, Greenville. Uh, We know that you are in control with COVID-19, with protests and anything else that goes on in our city. We know that you are a protector and you protect the victims and the oppressed. And God, if you called us to protect as well, then we want to extend that in your name. And God, we pray that you would draw many to yourself and that you would be the unity that this world cries out for. The Lord Jesus, that brokenness and boldness before the high priest would become our culture and DNA before any kind of political party. We pray that you would save, that there would be salvation in your heart, in your house. We pray that you would, you would truly turn and not just change our clothes and just change our behaviors, but change us from the inside out, that our will would become yours become sanctified we grow up in your truth to look like you that we would know you and have many more hours of priestly prayer more than Abraham that Abraham would start something that you're going to continue in our lives we would have hours in the prayer room approaching your bench 
knowing we'll find the mercy and the power that we need. And lastly, lastly, that we would go, that we would not stay, we would go into the world and become priests to bring God before man and man before God. We would not be so heavenly minded or so earthly minded that we would lose focus of what we're here to do, to be friends with God and priests to man. And we pray that your kingdom would come in a mighty way, that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.